you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. I think that there was a belief in the business world that big companies could always just eat small companies. So once you got big, you could slow down because you know no one was going to come along. Ted Sarandos, the chief content officer and co-CEO of Netflix. So when I think about the early days of Netflix and we were this small company and our biggest worry was that some big company was going to eat us up. And the truth, what we learned is that uh, big companies don't always eat small companies, but fast companies always outrun slow companies. I'm John Horn. The pandemic has devastated Hollywood. Disney has lost billions of dollars because of it. Some of the biggest movie theater chains are on the edge of bankruptcy and hundreds of thousands of creative workers are out of a job. Amidst all of that, one company isn't just surviving, it's thriving, and that's Netflix. This is Hollywood, the sequel. Welcome to our podcast. It's where Hollywood leaders talk about how the industry might come out of the pandemic changed for the better. And we couldn't very well consider how the business should reinvent itself without talking to the biggest change agent of all, Netflix. With so much of the world forced to stay at home, the streaming service has added 26 million subscribers in the first half of the year. But the company had shaken up the industry well before the pandemic. A little history. Netflix started in 1997 as an online DVD rental outfit. It launched its streaming service 10 years later in 2007. And back then, TV networks and movie studios were happy to sell the little upstart their old shows and films. But in so doing, they helped create their worst rival. Netflix will spend an estimated $17 billion this year on content. To fight back, competitors like Disney, Time Warner, and NBC Universal have launched their own streaming services. But does Netflix have too much power? Some movie theater chains and others would say yes. In addition to being chief content officer, Ted Sarandos is now co-CEO with founder Reed Hastings. And one important disclosure, my wife is a Netflix lawyer. The basic premise of our podcast is this, and that is, are we in the middle of a moment where Hollywood can or should reinvent itself? And if so, what might that future look like? So I'm going to start with the basic business right now. When things get back to normal, whenever that happens, how do you think the fundamental business is going to evolve post-pandemic? Well, look, I think largely a lot of things are going to go back to what we were doing. Um, 
there'll be many things that will linger. The good thing I think is in the return to production kind of safety protocols. Uh, many of those things I think are going to prove to be very effective in making uh, production safer and more efficient and will stick around. Uh, but I could tell you our experience of shooting around the world under these new uh, safety protocols is that the shoots are more organized. People know where they're supposed to be. They actually run quite smoothly. Um, and the, all the extra steps that is going into making the production environment uh, cleaner and healthier uh, has actually doesn't result in a big uh, delay of time because of the efficiency of the, of the production schedules. Um, fewer people uh, who don't need to be on the set or not on the set and all those kind of things, which actually changes uh, the way the rhythms of a production pretty significantly. I think some of those things will stick around. Um, in terms of the business itself, who makes movies, who makes TV shows, who watches them, um, I think that this uh, time that we're living in right now has kind of accelerated choice and accelerated options and gives uh, a lot more storytellers um, a place at bat uh, to be able to get out and get their stories told. So I wanna, I'm going to deal with that in a second, but I'm going to go to what's going on right now. There's a very spirited debate going on between a couple of theater chains uh, and Universal. Universal has taken a couple of its planned theatrical releases, Trolls World Tour and King of Staten Island, and put them directly on video on demand platforms. AMC has now capitulated and say they will run Universal movies for 17 days before they can go to digital platforms. The owner of Regal is like, no, terrible idea. But as you're watching that distribution model be challenged and kind of break apart in real time, how does that affect streaming companies and your ability to get your movies into theaters, which has been a real obstacle in the past? The great thing is, is um, getting our movies into theaters has not been an obstacle to getting them to audiences. Um, our films enjoy enormous audiences on Netflix. Uh, and on, on our film releases, like The Irishman and others, where we've uh, had pretty large uh, theatrical releases, uh, the big theater chains, the AMCs and others, have refused to book the, to book the films, which I think is really just bad for their business and bad for their customers uh, because the independent theater chains uh, enjoyed sellout performances on near, throughout nearly the entire runs of those shows. They're just smaller rooms, so it's harder for people to get tickets and get seats or to do you know a big box office number. But that's not the business model for us anyway. Uh, we're thrilled that we got the film into hundreds, thousands, actually, screens around the world for a nice long theatrical run for people who wanted to go to the theater. But it was also on Netflix if you chose to stay home and watch it at home. Uh, and for me, like, like I said, not being in theaters does not prevent us from getting an audience for a film. Uh, but I would like to be able to offer choice uh, to film goers and film lovers and to filmmakers uh, to be able to make their films available in the best theaters and on Netflix if consumers choose to watch that way. And what happens to that experience just for people like you and me that like to go see movies in theaters? I'm certainly not headed back to a theater anytime soon, even if they reopened. Do you think that that way of seeing movies for any consumer is going to be fundamentally changed if and when theaters open maybe middle of next year, next spring? Who knows when? It's really hard to tell. I mean, you think about what, what consumer behaviors. It took a couple of years you know, for commercial air travel to get back to normal post 9-11. So I do think that and that's a, and that's a really uh, 
a big necessity. So if you think about a lot of things like that, it's very hard to predict now what pe how people are going to feel emotionally six months from now, three months from now, 12 months from now. Uh, but I think going to the movies is kind of a fundamental uh, social event for people around the world and getting out of the house and, you know, seeing some things together. That's, you know, not, it's not the way most people see movies anymore. Uh, but it is a, a nice, it's a nice night out. And I would let, you know, I, I'm looking forward to having that option again. I, like you, I'm not positive when that will be or when I'll feel good enough to do it. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that it'll come around again. The other thing that I think is happening as theaters remain closed is that the kinds of movies that the studios make, I think are pretty much in question because companies like Disney have made a huge bet on big franchises. It could be Marvel, it could be Lucasfilm, it could be Pixar. And the fact that you can't go to a theater, I have to imagine is going to change the kind of films maybe that studios are going to make. But right now, does that create more of an opportunity for a company like yours that isn't really in that business of big event movies that it does mean that there is a shifting taste that is really kind of driven by what you can and cannot see in a theater. I'm not sure. I mean, I feel like we, we have got to be great at the, you know, the full complement of movies, the kind of things that people like to see. I mean, like kind of like in our TV business where we're trying to make things for your, whatever your mood is, whatever your taste is. Uh, and for moviegoers, you know, that could be a big action adventure escape film, you know, like Extraction uh, or The Old Guard on Netflix right now. Uh, or, you know, or it could be a small, much smaller, more intimate film like Marriage Story that is uh, tougher, I think, to get people out to the theaters for. Um, but I think what happens is over time, people get used to watching uh, movies at home and then they get used to watching premiere movies at home uh, and they kind of like it. Uh, so when we get a movie like like uh, Extraction, which, you know, almost 100 million Netflix accounts have watched the movie at least once. And you think about that and say, um, uh, that's about, a, you know, the, the, the cultural equivalent of a billion dollar movie at the box office. I do think uh, the way we think about what movies you do and don't see, I think the bigger they are, the more spe spectacular they are. That's kind of needed to get you off the couch. Uh, and the bar for that is going to keep getting higher and higher, I think. As for the shows that are meant to be watched on the couch and not in theaters, Netflix just collected the most Emmy Award nominations ever. When we come back, Hollywood is grappling with its troubled history of representation and inclusion, and that's where Netflix can use its power to make real progress. The opportunity to give filmmakers the resources to tell the stories that matter to their audiences is a responsibility, but it's also great business. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day -day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. <laughs> yeah, I think they're so smart. Just, what the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. 
Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. In 2013, Netflix commissioned its first original production, the White House drama House of Cards. Months later, it debuted Orange is the New Black. It was a series that was acclaimed for the diversity of its characters, including transgender actor Laverne Cox. And the series signaled a direction that Netflix was comfortable taking, investing in programming created by and featuring people of color, shows like Dear White People or When They See Us. As for the future, what does the company's commitment to equity look like, given that its three most powerful executives are white men? So clearly there has been the disruption from the pandemic, but there's also been another massive thing that's happened in the country, and that is this conversation about racism and equity from government to policing to the entertainment industry. So I want to ask you about a couple of things. In June, Netflix launched the Black Lives Matter collection, had films like Ava DuVernay's 13th, Justin Simeon's Dear White People, Barry Jenkins' Moonlight, Dee Reese's Mudbound, and your homepage for the BLM collection said more than a moment. So as a company, what does that mean, more than a moment, in terms of your priorities going forward and about how you might see things differently and how you're responding to that conversation? This has been an ongoing effort uh, for the entertainment industry, but particularly I can speak to Netflix, uh, that more than a moment was not a tagline that we created this summer. Uh, that was actually uh, a spot that we created a couple of years ago called um, uh, Great Day in Hollywood. Uh, where we put together our filmmakers of, of color uh, and the cast of their shows together to kind of reenact this photo from great, they're called Great Day in Harlem from the uh, old jazz movement. And the tagline for the, for that message was more than a moment. And it has been an ongoing part of who Netflix is since the beginning of our original content initiative. Um, the, the films that you just talked about, we were able to assemble that collection because we've been doing it for a long time. It wasn't a scramble. And I would say that the opportunity to give filmmakers the resources to tell the stories that matter to their audiences is a responsibility, but it's also great business. Uh, you mentioned uh, 13 with Ava, Ava DuVernay. Um, I happened to meet Ava for the first time at a screening of a movie she did called Middle of Nowhere. Um, and I mean, a phenomenal film about, you know, uh, basically about prison reform. And, uh, and that I was my wife's plus one at that screening. Um, but we wound up becoming great friends. And, uh, after Selma, we started talking about documentary projects and some things that she made entertain because earlier in her career, she was making docs and, uh, and the idea for 13th came up in those early conversations with Ava and myself and Lisa Nishimura. And it was, um, such a powerful film and got an enormous audience. It got Oscar nomination and, uh, you know, brought the public to that conversation. And that was years ago. So we're, we're, we have an ongoing commitment in, to invest in storytellers um, as legendary as Spike Lee, um, as proven as Ava DuVernay, uh, as new as Dee Reese, uh, or somebody even like Stefan Bristol, who uh, was not yet out of NYU when we funded his film See You Yesterday for Netflix, or Gina Prince-By-The-Wood, who directed The Old Guard, uh, first African-American woman to ever direct a big budget star-driven action feature in the history of Hollywood. So uh, we're, we're committed uh, to finding the best storytellers and giving them the ac- access to the assets to make those films. 
Would you say your commitment has changed? Have you redoubled? Have you made it even more of a priority now than it might have been, say, three months ago? I, you know, it's just it's been in our DNA for so long. Um, the thing that people forget, Netflix is a lot different than many media companies in that the green light power doesn't reside just with me. Uh, in fact, I haven't greenlit a show or a film in a couple of years. Um, my team, I have vice presidents and directors who have more green light authority than most network presidents and studio presidents. So the commitment that we all have to make to each other is to make sure that our company uh, represents our audience. Uh, and if folks want to get these stories made and they're coming into a room full of people who they don't think understand their story, um, that's a, you know, that's got to be a super disheartening uh, meeting to have for, for a filmmaker. It's hard enough to get your things made, to, you know, even if they're great. You definitely don't want them to get them made because you don't think the, the person you're pitching to gets it. Uh, so we want to make sure that the audience uh, for those pitches is as diverse as the audience who may watch it down the road. Uh, we've been investing and growing in that. Now, am I happy with the numbers that we have now? Of course not. Uh, but we're continuing to do the work and we continue to push forward. So one of your filmmakers, you mentioned her name, Ava DuVernay, said on our podcast that as long as white men are calling the shots and at the top of the food chain, truly meaningful change is impossible, that there needs to be a total reset. And the three top people at Netflix are all white men, Reed Hastings, yourself, and Greg Peters. Does that concern you at all? And if not, why not? Well, Ava also said in the New York Times that Netflix is the largest distributor of black images in the world. We have a deep commitment uh, to diversity and inclusion, uh, and we're getting better and more representative about it all the time. Um, so I do think I, I think that the again, that if all of the decision making uh, authority was wrangled with the, with myself or even the three of us, uh, that would be a problem. But it certainly is not. And like I said, projects find their home on Netflix because of the uh, diverse and rich um, group of executives who hear those stories and inbound those stories. If you are really trying to make sure that going forward or even now, the company is going to look as much like the country as is possible, do you look at stated targets? Do you look at mandates? How do you measure your own progress and make sure that you're doing as good a job as you can? Look, I think the main thing is is a commitment to ongoing improvement because I think if you lay out numbers and targets, you wind up having all kinds of things that make you comfortably check boxes, which is not what we're after. Um, and, you know, you've got a group of people who really like to win. So if you define the win as X number of people doing this, they're going to figure out a way to do that. But I think what's really much more important is that you're putting uh, resources in the hands of folks at a very large scale. Uh, so, like, I would argue that um, the impact uh, of having Gina direct a, you know, $100 million budget plus movie is far more impactful than having 100 people with a million dollars making, you know, million dollar movies. Uh, and we're doing both, which I think is what's really important. I don't want to get lulled into any false sense of confidence that we're done. Our work is not done. Uh, but I think it was a good example, I think, is that if you don't use your position in the world to just be another gatekeeper... That's not what we're trying to do. I'm trying to be an enabler. We're trying to figure out ways to, to enable storytelling, not to block it uh, and not to prevent um, unproven talent to prove themselves. What have you learned during the pandemic? Obviously, a lot of people are sheltering in place and the company is gaining a lot of subscribers. What has it taught you about what people want in terms of stories and how your role as a entertainment company might have evolved just in the last six months? 
You know, it's funny. I, I'm gonna, I haven't asked his permission to share this quote, but uh, Guillermo del Toro, um, we talked um, a few months into the quarantine, and he said it's come, become clear to him uh, the things that he really needs in life are food, water, and stories. Um, and that without those stories, he couldn't have gotten through. Um, and you think about, you know, that as kind of an essential element of the human condition uh, is being able to connect with people far away and worlds that you don't live in and all those things. So in general, I think what we've learned in, uh, in our short time and, you know, hopefully making um, this experience a little more bearable for folks is that people just really want stories um, and they want stories that are really diverse and really reflect how they're feeling that day. And that could be something as intimate as uh, unorthodox uh, or as, uh, you know, head scratching as Tiger King uh, or as big as, as uh, extraction. So I do think, like I said, the variety of things that really caught on for us during this period of time. Uh, was remarkable. Everything from competition shows to big budget films uh, to, you know, crazy documentary worlds like uh, Tiger King. Just to trade Guillermo del Toro quotes, we talked to him a couple months ago and he said, the business is like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Who will survive? And I thought it was a really good point that we are at a moment of profound disruption and what's going to happen coming out of this is anybody's guess. How confident are you that you know, what you are doing is going to be viable, that the way the world is changing so quickly, that streaming is still going to be important, that, you know, people are going to still want entertainment. We don't know the future. And there are a lot of people around, you know, it could be actors, it could be studios that aren't going to make it through this. Well, I can tell you, you know, professional filmed entertainment has been pretty resilient, you know, over a hundred years. So, uh, I do think, and, and storytelling has been resilient as long as there's been people. So I, I do think that um, I'm, I have 100% confidence that, if anything, our relationship with content and storytelling has deepened uh, and our need for it. Now, when we can go out, will there be a period of, you know, uh, like you see in Europe, as soon as the weather clears and everyone's on the street? Probably, but I, but I don't know, you know, but I don't think it's going to happen, you know, like, like winter and spring. Uh, I think it'll it's going to be one of those things where gradually people will get closer to their old habits, but they will have formed new ones. And which ones stick and which ones don't, that's what's going to be yet to be understood. In the weeks to come, we'll hear from late night host Samantha B. For years, she has made putting together a diverse staff a priority. Diversity has always been something we've thought about in every single hire and every single moment of the show. But even we can do better. And if we can do better, that means everybody can do a lot better. Our thanks to Ted Sarandos and to you for listening. We hope you'll subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please give us a rating, leave us a comment, and share the podcast. This episode of Hollywood the Sequel was produced by Shelley Lewis and Monica Bushman with help from Darby Maloney and Jessica Pilot. Our engineer and sound designer is Eduardo Perez, and our theme music is composed by Nicholas Bertel. Hollywood the Sequel is a production of LAS Studios. I'm John Horn. We'll see you next time.
The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.